Okay, let's move to our discussion and say a very good morning to our guests. Uh, they are Andrew Ferris, uh, CEO of uh, eCognosis Advisory. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, but let's not rush into conclusions. Okay? <laughs> Absolutely. And let's say hello and good morning to Dwifa Evans, uh, head of APAC Macro Strategy at State Street Global Markets. Uh, hi, Dwifa. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Good morning to you. Great. Nice to have you on the show. Sounds like the line might be a little rough, but let's see how it goes. Um, Andrew, let's let's kick off uh, with looking forward to uh, uh, what's going to happen in uh, uh, Jackson Hole. Um, how are you expecting uh, Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Powell to perform at this uh, event, which uh, kicks off uh, later today? Uh, first of all, I'm not looking forward to it. Secondly, I'm utterly indifferent, and I can tell you exactly what they're going to tell us. They're going to tell us that uh, they will not begin to think about stopping increasing interest rates, but they will not necessarily increase them till the trend in inflation has completely stabilized for at least a minimum of six months. After that, they might consider cutting. End of story. I think it is juvenile to try to outguess the Fed. Worse than that is to decide when interest rates are going to be cut, when the Fed tells you specifically and exactly what they're going to do. You know, there are better things in life. Apparently, Jackson Hole is a very pleasant place to go, okay? But uh, I would definitely would not make in the effort in order to increase my understanding of uh, the world economy. Dwifer, are we, are we playing a guessing game about uh, interest rates and uh, you know, maybe that's something we shouldn't be doing? Well, I guess the markets have to, don't they? The bond markets have to play a game. Uh, where the bond markets, I think, have got this one wrong, and Andrew's right, actually, is that expectations that we're going to see rate cuts anytime soon uh, have been pushed back by the Fed, particularly Powell himself, for quite some time. I would expect the message to be the same again at Jackson Hole, um, is that, look, we, we know that there's disinflation on the headline rate, although actually there are question marks about that, given the strength of energy and, and food prices that we're seeing in August. Uh, but when you look at underlying uh, conditions in inflation, things are very elevated relative to target. And in that environment, no way will the Fed give any signals at all towards rate easing uh, for, for some time, probably up until 2024, the early part of 2024. So it's, it's much a game. I mean, the market... Dwifel, I think we're probably going to give you a call back because the line is actually um, rather poor at the moment. Can't really make out quite what you're hearing. Um, so just bear with us for a moment, if you don't mind. Um, uh, Andrew, uh, what, what else can we uh, expect from Jackson Hole? You know, is there going to be some kind of impact from what's been going on at the BRICS conference? Ah, that's another thing that I found it pleasant laudable but utterly and totally irrelevant for god's sakes what's the common interest between ethiopia and brazil i mean they are going to sit down on the table and discuss what of common interest to both of them you know uh, BRICS. first uh, i might be slightly wrong here but uh, it was named it was not decided on by a major Western investment bank. So that's a little bit of a, of a, of a little joke. <laughs> so to, it wasn't Jim O'Neill? Yeah, it was Jim O'Neill. Okay, if I remember well, was he, was he uh, uh, J.C. Morgan or was he... Uh, 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 oh, God, all right, never mind. He, he was a, a member of an important uh, Western hmm. uh, investment bank. I think Point, Goldman Sachs. Probably. Goldman Sachs, okay, BRICS. Okay, first, it was a club. It was never a club because you read it. It was a beautiful acronym. Suddenly it became a club, and these people became members of it without even knowing it. <laughs> I, I find it uh, delicious. Yeah, it's very nice. <laughs> they can all sit around 
and uh, they can all decide that they will push together, which is very, uh, let's say, very laudable. Uh, being a firm Asian, I also remember a lot of other acronymics, and I'm not being disrespectful. Repeat, I'm not being disrespectful. Apex, Mapex, Texas, Plexus, Axis. Okay, I'd like to know what's happening to them, or in which way they have been important in changing the trading environment in Asia. All right, so BRICS is going to be... Well, and uh, another nice place to have a convention every once a year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dweefa, have you been following uh, uh, BRICS? Um, you know, what, what are your what, what's your sense about these new members joining from January the first next year? It's look, it's it's something for the medium to long term. It's nothing that we've been necessarily thinking about right now as having any real impact. I guess what it does is potentially undermines. Uh, the G20, because the G20 would have included many of these countries that are now joining this sort of BRICS membership, as it were. Um, I would, uh, along with Andrew's comments, I would even question what the uh, what the use of the G20 has been over the last five or six years. Frankly, hardly anything at all, apart from a talking shop. Mm-hmm. We're, all, we're very used to the G7 and G8, of course, um, but without the sort of leadership, political leadership, economic leadership of the major global economies within the G7 and G8, it does strike me that an extended BRICS is probably nothing more than the attempt, at least by China, to gain another grouping that it can try and lead and it can try and push towards some sort of global membership of a, of a multilateral base. The, the only thing I would say about it, which I think has more sort of medium and long-term implications, is that clearly by... Uh, wanting to become a member of this other group, as it were, the Middle Eastern countries are once again trying to play you know, various sides off against each other. And some of the, uh, I guess, historical relationship between, say, the US and the West and the Middle Eastern countries are now looking a little bit shakier because of the, the desire of the Middle Eastern countries to now play off uh, the Western world against uh, the emerging markets world. So I think energy is a focus, but nothing in the near term that should necessarily uh, have any sort of market impact or any sort of fundamental impact. So are you saying, do you think that then, you know, the G7 obviously has quite a lot of, a lot of impact. It's quite a, a tight grouping of similarly minded uh, countries. And, uh, you know, maybe BRICS should stick with its five members and not expand and include Ethiopia uh, in, in the mix. Well, I mean, the G7, uh, the, 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 I guess the criticism of G7 is is that it is a representative body of the major markets in the post-war era, obviously post-Second World War era, we're way beyond that now. What the G7 doesn't do is acknowledge the fact that there have been significant increases in terms of economic impact from the old sort of emerging markets, the likes of China and India, that have clearly become far, far bigger components of global output. Uh, G7 doesn't, well, doesn't acknowledge that or recognize that in terms of membership. And so there is this desire, of course, by the likes of China and India to have uh, or to play a more advanced sort of global role. And if they are not invited to become members of the G7, then they have to create their own club. And ultimately, this is what we're seeing now is a collection of clubs uh, of varying degrees and colors globally. So yeah. this is yet another iteration of that. Um, I, I, and I suppose the point is, though, you know, uh, getting things done is, is easier with a smaller group than it is with a bigger group, right? Well, history would suggest that, uh, which is why the G20 has done virtually nothing, which is why with each additional member, the European Union is finding it more and more difficult to come out with uh, uh, a, uh, 
uh, a voice of one, as it were. So, yeah, we, the more members you have. But that, that, of course, then raises the specter of, well, if we have a larger grouping, there is ostensibly going to be an implicit leader of that larger grouping. And, of course, that is how China is trying to position itself. So whether this is going to be some sort of Chinese-led BRICS faction, I guess, uh, remains to be seen. But China is in a far stronger position to be leading this type of faction than the likes of even South Africa, Ethiopia, and some of the other countries that are part of this grouping. So again, it's, a, it's, an, it's another multilateral body that is seeking to portray a sort of global vision. Uh, turning to China's uh, economy, um, Andrew, you know, we've, we've obviously seen some withdrawing from uh, investments uh, by foreigners in China. Uh, there's been a bit of a wipeout on market value uh, across the board. But, but what is the state of uh, China's economy? Is it as bad as we're saying? Uh, I'm going to give you a slightly off-the-wall answer, and that is everybody knows what long COVID is. It is what you feel after you have had COVID. It has 14 very unpleasant uh, syndromes, or rather symptoms. Okay, you feel tired, achy, feverish, vomity, nervous, uh, ill-tempered, okay. But you're not going to die from them. Mm. Well, I can tell you the Chinese economy is a kind of a long COVID economy. There is nothing fundamentally wrong that it inverted commerce is going to die. Namely, it's not going to grow by 5%, but perhaps it will grow by 4%. 14 major indexes in China, count them, one four major index China are over the last half a year they are either negative, flat or declining. covid kind of thing. You know, yeah, not feeling very good. Mm, that's not very nice. Yes, this could be better. Okay, hence looking at China I'm simply looking at an economy which is will continue to grow at an acceptable rate. All the symptoms driving investors away are potentially for very good reasons. Okay, and at the same time, nothing really that will uh, make it a pivotal point so that China, we're going to see China instead of growing at uh, 4%, growing at 1%. Uh, that's not going to happen. Hence, I call it the malaise or the COVID economy. Okay, ta very simple. Mm. Uh, where do I invest? Ask me another question, then I'll give you, I'll give you a different answer again. <laughs> but but, but not, not necessarily in China. Not necessarily in China. Okay. Mm. Uh, Dwifa, you know, is that something that you see, um, you know, China is not actually quite as bad as we think. Um, you know, the, the PBOC has uh, been, uh, poked around with interest rates this week. What, what are your thoughts there? Well, it's a little, a little underwhelming. I mean, the economy is underwhelming. The policy response has been underwhelming. And, and if I was looking at this from position of an international investor, I would probably be looking for a little bit more from policymakers. Uh, I would also, of course, be looking at the geopolitics. And I mean, this is where the uh, yet another visit by a, a U.S. Uh, administrator this weekend now is going to be important. Uh, the, the, the geopolitics, actually, in the discussions that I have with investors, the, the economy is a concern. The geopolitics is probably a bigger concern to the extent that you don't really know whether you should be investing in China because you don't really know the landscape of investing in China because of this continued schism between the US and between China, things like sanctions and things like um, uh, limits to investment proposals and things of that nature. So uh, to Andrew's point, I mean, the, the, the economy is underwhelming. The policy response has been underwhelming, and that's being exacerbated by concerns about the geopolitics as well. And it's very real, the concerns on geopolitics, because it's clearly, there are clearly you know, sovereign policies afoot 
to uh, drive a wedge between China and the Western world, and that's, you know, that's an, an ongoing trend. Uh, full, full marks to do with her. I'm sorry I'm interjecting here. Mm. Full marks to do with her, and also with clenched teeth. Wait to see what happens if Trump gets elected. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, just in closing, um, just before we go, um, y- y- I know you've had some interest in in investing in COVID-related pharmacy uh, stocks. Is that something that's still uh, a positive? 100%. You know, long COVID is cutting th- huge swathes through every single country that had COVID, which means effectively 100%. Okay, And, of course, it is not measured. Uh, it is undetectable because it is symptomatic rather than specific, and it's going to be here for us for a very long time. So anybody that provides palliatives is going to make a lot of money over a long time period. I'm constrained from actually naming names, but I'm hard working at it, and there is some interesting signs. Andrew Ferris is CEO of Ecognosis Advisory and also on the show, Drifo Evans, head of APAC Macro Strategy at State Street Global Markets. Thank you 